everyone on this incredibly sunny, cheerful day, warm, warm. Uh, uh, I'm really uh, happy today to have two speakers, uh, 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 both of whom are uh, very active lab members. And so uh, first we'll have Matthijs Gillesen uh, give a talk and Matthijs, and then uh, Christian People. I will first introduce Matthijs. Not to be confused with the other Matthijs who will join me today as your co-host, and he will do the Q&A. But Matthijs Gilles then, uh, uh, Matthijs Gilles uh, is a uh, research master's student at Radboud University in Nijmegen, uh, doing the research master in sociology, if I remember correctly. And uh, it's, of course, a very nice uh, discipline. And uh, uh, he's doing an internship with uh, me and Matthijs Rodang. Uh, 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 on the topic of empathy, and uh, this will also be the topic of this presentation today. Uh, so, Matthijs, so you will have we'll have about twenty five minutes to discuss your work, and then we'll switch questions. Thank you very much for the introduction, and uh, thank both of you as well for uh, allowing me to do this research. Uh, I think it's a very interesting topic, and this is a great opportunity for uh, yeah me to explore this topic further. Everything's loading. There we go. Do you see the slides correctly? It just says has started. Oh, now, now we see it, yeah. But you still need to enlarge them. All right. Did it not, uh, yeah, there we go. So no, it's a bit, bit slow. Hopefully, hopefully the internet connection doesn't uh, make it difficult, but um, yeah, well, as my, um, as guys introduced, I'm doing my topic about empathic concern uh, and how this influences how we shape some of our political attitudes. So. The primary purpose of um, the project that I'm currently doing is to try to replicate findings of a study conducted by Seamus, Kirkland, and uh, Clifford regarding the relationship between empathic concern in the US. And I wanted to see if these relationships can also be found in the Dutch multi-party context. So I'll first talk a bit about the original study and how we're doing the study, um, and also what empathy is, and then going into the specific studies that I'll be conducting. So the paper that uh, I became fascinated by this topic by was called How Empathic Concern Fuels Political Polarization. Um, quite counter to what is commonly argued, these authors argue that empathic concern actually exaggerates, opposed to alleviates political polarization because expressions of empathy in daily life are often biased along, uh, depending on the relationship between an individual and the target that they're asked to empathize with. So this has some wicked consequences. And what they find is that empathic concern fuels positive feelings towards the in-party and negative feelings towards the out-party, hence increasing the perception of polarization, as well as that they show that empathic concern fuels greater partisan bias within the desire to censor a speaker particularly, and feelings of schadenfreude towards individuals who are irritated or are harmed. So I want to see, is this also the case in the Netherlands? So I'll be conducting two studies based on these findings and test hypotheses of empathic concern is indeed positively related to in-party favoritism and negatively to out-party favoritism, as well as that empathic concern is associated with the desire to censor particularly an out-party speaker, not an in-party, but an out-party speaker. And we are also interested in the association between empathic concern and schadenfreude. And for those that are not German, schadenfreude means the joy at someone else's pain and suffering. This is quite an established negative relationship, but the finding is, is that this is notably a weaker effect for out-party members suffering than in-party members suffering. 
In contrast to the original study, we actually explicitly hypothesize that these relationships do not hold for perspective taking and simply apply to empathic concern. So that uh, perspective taking does not have any relationship to desire to censor in-party nor out-party speakers, and that the negative relationship between perspective taking and Schadenfreude is not moderated by partisan implications. So what do we mean by empathy? There's actually a lack of consensus around what this means. Other than that, this serves as an umbrella term to talk about related but distinct concepts. We'll be using the interpersonal reactivity index to measure empathy. This is one of multiple indexes out there that can be utilized, but this is the one that was used by Seamus and colleagues originally, hence why we will also utilize it. And it captures particularly differences in the dispositional tendency of people to be empathic. The four components that are included within this index are empathic concern, which relates to a motivational component of empathy, the readiness that we are concerned about others' well-being, perspective taking, which relates to the cognitive aspect of empathy about how uh, able we are to think what another person might be thinking, fantasy and personal distress, which where fantasy relates more to the ability to imagine, hence relating to the cognitive component, and personal distress being relevant to actually um, have altruistic behavior um, and the willingness to actually be motivated to do uh, to have pro-social behavior. So for the first study we're interested in looking at how this influences the evaluation of different political parties. So we will ask respondents how sympathetic they consider the different political parties within the Netherlands on a scale from zero to ten and we'll follow a similar operationalization as Seamus and colleagues did. So in the main analysis to capture in-party favoritism we take the score assigned to the most like party and subtract the score assigned to the least like party and for out party favoritism we use the score for the least like party now the issue is is that in the netherlands there are not simply two parties this would be in the american context where you can ask do you identify as a democrat or republican and use that to conceptualize in group and out uh, in party and out party favoritism so to address this issue of there being multiple parties in between the most and least like party we utilize alternatives as articulated by wagner most importantly, we use a distance relative party favoritism score as shown in the formula above, where you look at the weighted, uh, the sum weighted difference between the most and the least like party and all other parties, and a spread party favoritism score, which doesn't uh, focus on in or out party, but rather differences in how people evaluate political parties, where we also assume that this has a positive association to empathic concern as empathic people with greater amounts of empathic concern have more positive feelings towards the in-group and more negative feelings towards the out-group, hence having a greater spread. Importantly, we weigh these scores to account for the size of political parties within the spectrum. So if you don't like the, the so parties such as Deixe Successe, Feife Day, and Beifefe in the Netherlands will have a higher weight and hence have a greater influence on the final score. So um, our analysis plan is that we will create ordinal least squared multivariate linear regression models, which include the four components uh, of empathy as can be found within the, inter within the IRI, uh, in addition to some of the control variables that were also used in the original study. Uh, I conducted a power analysis, assuming similar effects to that found uh, in the study we are trying to replicate with a margin of error, of course, and a slightly smaller correlation between perspective taking and empathic concern as based on findings uh, of empathy within the Dutch context in the past. From this, uh, to reach a power of 0.8, assuming an alpha level of 0.05, uh, we need 1,600 respondents to actually reach, uh, achieve a power of 0.8. So this is what our aim is. For the second study, we utilize an experimentally manipulated prompt where two notable events happen. 
there's a controversial speaker where there's a protest and the speaker is ultimately cancelled. And we will, after exposing our respondents to the story, ask them to what extent they agree with the speaker being cancelled or not. Second, the important event that occurs is that a bystander gets hit by a board of the protests uh, and this person says, hey, I, this is quite annoying and I actually would have liked to hear the speaker signaling a certain partisan implication in that. And afterwards, we ask respondents how amusing or funny they found this event to capture Schadenfreude. What we manipulate in the story is who the speaker is talking about. So as we'll show later on, uh, the speaker will say that blank are despicable and disgusting. And this, in our cases, will either be the PFFA supporters or Links. And accordingly, uh, there will be a student organization that will be protesting the speaker. So if the if Links gets bashed, it will be a left-leaning student organization organizing the protests and vice versa for the right. To ensure that both the experimental conditions are shown equally, so equal amount of in and out party treatment, we split respondents based on whether they lean left or right, and then expose these two groups equally to both versions of the story. So here you see the original story, and it has four clear events that we will also follow. There are police, in this case particularly campus police, who are shutting down a protest of a speaker, where the speaker says, there may be nothing more despicable or disgusting than a Democrat. Then there is a continuation of the protest occurring, and there is a person, Michelle, who gets hit by a board and says she's pretty annoyed by it and that she actually would have wanted to hear the speaker, signaling that she sides more with the speaker than the protesters. And the story ends by the protesters ultimately succeeding in canceling the speaker and a petition going around to also uh, punish these protesters for having quite chaotic uh, protests. Now, a notable issue is, is that the story is dependent on campus events. And in the Dutch context, this is not as prevalent. There is not a campus police. There's campus security by chance, but police is truly a step upwards. So adapting this to the Dutch context, we still have these four events, and we obviously cannot use Democrats or Republicans as ready. So we try to create uh, fictive student organizations that do signal whether they are left or right leaning. And here you can see that there is a right-leaning student organization, Freie Demokratische Studentenforum, who's protesting a speaker, a left-leaning speaker, who says that PVV supporters are disgusting and despicable. Other than that, the story largely remains the same. Here you see the reverse of this story, but now the, where the speaker is a right-leaning speaker and the organization is left, uh, the student organization is left-leaning. So uh, we'll again create ordinal uh, least squared multivariate linear regression models, but instead of including all components of empathy, we only include empathic concern or perspective taking, depending on the hypotheses that we intend to test, experimental condition, and their interaction effect between it. We again conducted power analysis based on the relationships found in the study that we're trying to replicate with, again, a margin of error. And we found that a thousand respondents should be enough to achieve a power of 0.8 uh, with uh, at a alpha level of 0 0.05. And we hope to achieve this through convenient sampling of university students, which is likely very optimistic, but this is hopefully what we are able to do. So uh, there are some points still of discussion before we sent this out into the field, as we are adapting a story from the US context to the Dutch context, the US the Dutch context. And this relates to our determining in and out party for the respondent. In the first study, we were making assumptions that the most like political party represents the in party and the least like party represents 
uh, out party. And for the second study, we assume that we can that the actors within the story reflect in and out party implications correctly for the person, but we do not actually ask them in any way directly who they consider to be their inner out party. And the second issue is about the adaptation of the story. So is there an issue about this story that we are presenting being off campus opposed to on campus? If, uh, because there are multiple parties and we've also selected parties, uh, is there implications of who the speaker is bashing? So we use PFFA and who links, might there be another alternative which might be better? And how can we adequately capture uh, an in-group audience large enough through the naming of organizations and some of the names that uh, currently are being, we're thinking of is the Association of Right or Left Students, Students for Equality and Tradition, uh, the or the Conservative slash Progressive Student Union, clearly signaling uh, common ideological threads of left and right leaning uh, individuals. So if you could provide feedback on that, that would be very great. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to send this out rather soon into the field to get this research on, on the way. And um, yeah, that, that's what uh, I'm very curious to hear feedback. I'm wanting to improve this as well and there's still stuff to do. So I'm glad to, to hear it. Thank you, uh, Matthijs. Oh, Thank you. Uh, very interesting, of course. Um, before maybe uh, people have uh, uh, a question, I of course uh, know uh, what, what you are planning to do because uh, yeah, I've been involved from the start, but I was, while listening to you now, I was wondering one, uh, about one conceptual thing. So you, um, you uh, when you, you presented uh, empathy, right? And that it consists of four different uh, elements. Uh, the first one is empathic concern, which is the uh, concept uh, you're focusing on. Uh, you're focusing on here, but then the last one was personal distress, um, and I was wondering to what extent is personal distress uh, not just the opposite of empathic concern? Because the way you presented it, right, it was really similar, but then basically the opposite. Could you maybe tell a bit more about that? Yes, um, there there are obviously related, but. Um... You can, for example, be very concerned with someone, but be dispositionally not likely to experience that distress or in your own life, simply be less distressed. So it's not that these are opposites, but um, when we are being concerned for another, and particularly we're talking about empathy, we are taking over this other person's distress. So taking into account the own dispositional tendency to be distressed, and then considering that you're adding more distressed, likelihood of actually conducting pro-social behavior and or doing something opposed to simply walking away notably diminishes. So it's not that these are contradictions as much as filling out the more complete picture of what empathy is. And this again highlights that there are different components that should be accounted for. Yeah, thanks. I was, um, maybe before we, we, uh, we also move to the, because you had some specific questions uh, to the audience. I also just, just wanted to ask you, uh, when you look at the four components, what would you expect? Uh, of course, the, the the article was about empathic uh, empathic concern and the effect on effective polarization. Would you expect there also to be an effect of uh, personal distress? Would I expect there to be an effect of personal distress? Well, yeah. that is very uh, difficult to say. I do not. I would not expect there to be a result. Um, I think there was also that they found in the original study that it was insignificant relationships. Uh, and conceptually, I, I cannot reason uh, to that it would help in or out party favoritism because everyone experiences distress in a different manner and it can from there have many different consequences. 
yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, more questions, guys? Oh, yeah, I'm okay. Um, uh, thanks so much. Very nice uh, line of work. I'm very uh, interested to, to see uh, what the verdict will, be, will, will look like. Um, my question is um, is about the, the, the prompt message. So you also had like some, some questions about that. So my question is, first of all, like how did they do this like in the CMAS study, the regional study? So was this like, how did they um, constructed this message? Did they assign like a journalist, for instance, to do this? And consequently, how, how are you planning to do this in your study? Have you considered about that? And the reason why I'm asking this is uh, because uh, that could play like um, the perceived realism or uh, the, um, the, the source reliability could, could be factors playing in. Are you planning to, to control for that or do you have some ideas about this? Well, uh, controlling for it, I was hoping to also have some feedback on that um, because obviously the believability of the story is a notable part in it in which uh, I tried to adapt it much as possible. As to what the original study did, they did not uh, indicate that they have uh, somebody specifically, uh, a journalist, for example, who came up with the story. They're very ambiguous about how they formed the story, but in order to remain as closely to the original, we do not uh, wish to manipulate it. But that is an issue, obviously, when you're talking about the Dutch context and campus police and things like that. So um, if there's any feedback on how I can control uh, for differences in perceived uh, believability of the story, I would be, would be glad to hear it. There, there are definitely some standardized like questions that are frequently used in communication science that you could look into, like, like indeed perceived realism or um, uh, credibility, um, topic, um, sorry, story credibility or source credibility could refer to different dimensions. Um, another thing you could, you could look at is sort of a manipulation check to see whether, for instance, the endorsement part, so the, how many likes, I, I think I saw that like on your, on your stimulus, but I'm not entirely sure if I registered that information. So was there like some information showing how many people have read this article or how many times it has been retweeted or something like that? Which is what, what, what they do in the original study is they uh, provide hyperlinks and make it more um, seem as if it's a genuine web article. And this is something that I'm simply trying to uh, figure these, out as well. All these elements are indeed like important to think about how they could play in on, on somebody judging the quality of this article. Um, so you can consider like having a few questions there about that. And about your question, in my opinion, I think you should tie the story as close as like psychologically prox proximal to, to, to your audience. Um, so yes, indeed, like referring to things that happen on campus might be psychologically more strong compared to things that happen out there. Um, that, that was what, what uh, Matthias was asking, right? At some point, I think. Yeah, yeah well, the basically the, the translation- versus off campus. Uh, yeah, the translation to the Dutch context, because of course we don't have the campus and the police. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, things like that. Um, yeah, that's it, I guess. I don't know. I can't think of something more immediate at the moment. But yeah, really cool stuff. Thank you. That's very helpful. I will uh, look into those standardized measures to uh, control for believability. Christian, then. Uh, thank you, Matthias. That was super, super interesting, super cool to see. Um, I have one question. Um, I was about like the setup of your, 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 your stories here. What I was wondering, um, I'm wondering if you are wondering if um, 
these story planes are the same for your left frame and your right wing frame. Because from the top of my head, I cannot think of any event or where it has been mediatized that a right wing speaker got cancelled by a left wing organization. At least like maybe that's because of my Twitter bubble, but I only see like right wing people always complaining that the left tries to cancel them. And I think at least when it comes to like who yeah, how this topic is, is coming into the heads of people usually, it's 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 always about these claims that it's the left that cancels right wing speakers. I think in Germany and I for the first time that the, the right was kind of successful in, in this kind of effort to cancel a, a left wing prominent left wing person on TV. But usually it's that way around, at least that's kind of how it's presented to people. So I'm wondering if that might trouble you. This is for sure something that I've thought about. Um, and I'm not really sure, also because it depends largely on the sample that we're able to achieve, because we'll be sampling students, which this is generally more a left-leaning audience to begin with. So actually going about testing left or right differences might be more difficult in those terms. Um, I mean, I would actually say quite the opposite, where you're saying uh, it's mainly right-wing people complaining about being censored and then going out and trying to censor left people. I would, be my for my own kind of bubble, think it would be the opposite, but. Um, that's just an interesting point, but it, it is something that I've considered, but mainly due to sampling difficulties, not something that I'm articulating as a part of this plan. Yeah, yeah really cool study. Uh, Matthijs, really uh, nice to see this uh, project. Uh, I was just wondering, I probably just missed it, but more about the theoretical reasoning uh, of your hypothesis. So. Uh, people higher on empathy uh, leads to more inquisitivism and more negative responses to output, right? But wouldn't you think that people who are very high on empathy would also be more open to output members? And even if you, for example, do a manipulation more like related to state empathy, could you um, put people in the shoes of the out party? Would that not lead to like less polarization? This is fascinating. I would have loved to talk more about the theory behind it, but I have to keep my presentation short. Um, the, the first thing is that there's a notable difference in the dispositional tendency of people to be empathic and have it in their daily life and actively have empathy be an intervention strategy where you're asked to empathize with a specific target. The issue is, is that we do not readily empathize with everyone in our daily lives, but when we're asked to empathize with someone, that has different consequences. So that's why there's a lot of studies about empathy being very helpful in uh, improving intergroup relations within contexts of interventions. But within daily life, which is more where uh, a lot of research is heading towards now, we're seeing these more complex consequences where we are more empathic to people that are closer to us, more similar to us, or part of our in-group than people that are part of the out-group. And this has impact for how we evaluate political parties and the whole nine yards. Thanks. Guys, I think, uh, yeah, final question. Well, uh, no, yeah. I had a question a while ago. <laughs> uh, just no, yeah, it was mostly a question for for clarification. In the, the the examples you gave of the treatments, you spoke about Beethoven, uh, But so if I said my in party was fifty plus and my out party is the animal rights party, then then those are the labels that appear in in the treatments, right or not? Uh, no, that's not because. Um... It becomes very difficult to say who's the out party of uh, five plus and who's uh, or who's uh, yeah. So uh, in this particular case, uh, it's being fixed to pay for and links to avoid 
differences between parties as that could lead to uh, a greater amount of complexity being introduced. But this is a point uh, of limitation of the study where if you do yeah. not consider the PFFA to be your outgroup, that is uh, the end all be all. I think it's, I mean, if anything, this, this would then be a good choice, but how are, are you going to establish out party then as a dichotomous? Uh, so you're in the out party. Uh, uh, so suppose if I'm, uh, um, if I'm a faith day partisan versus a labor party partisan, is then the, the, the PVV for me as much of an, as the sort of the same amount of out party, or are you going to perceive this as a gradient? We're, I'm very much conceiving of it as a dichotomy where uh, you're either exposed to the, the speaker being an out-party member or an in-party member, um, but there is obviously differences between that. So if I wasn't sure how to account for that, um, and this is also why I mentioned it as a point of uh, questioning. Um, yeah. Minimally, we could pre-register going about this in two ways, like either treating this as a dichotomy or as a skill. No, that sounds very fair. Yeah, and could you could you um, if you uh, go for the dichotomy, you could also still control for it, right? By um, looking at the distance, maybe to the uh, uh, between the parties. So if you vote, if your in group is VVD versus uh, an out party is uh, the, the Social Democrats, you can basically add a control variable saying how far. Away you are from the green left and the VV, and the PVP. Yeah, that's actually smarter yes. because otherwise, what I propose, you destroy the fact that it's an experimental condition. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta. Yeah. Can we cut this out of the recording? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's two beers. Two beers. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll have to hurry then. <laughs> it's uh, about half past uh, three. I think we will. Uh... Yeah. We will um, thank you, uh, Matthijs, and we will now go to uh, Christian. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot, Matthijs. I think it's really a great presentation, uh, really remarkable work uh, uh, for uh, someone who is just still a research master student. And by the way, if you want to uh, uh, compete in the guessing game, what are all the trophies about uh, <laughs> on top of Matthijs' head? You can send uh, your answers to my email address. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, so, uh, 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 for those of you, uh, I haven't looked at our list of participants, but who think about hiring PhD students anytime soon, uh, watch uh, Matthijs. Hilles, of course. Matthijs Rodan already has a job. So. <laughs> okay, uh, next speaker, uh, Christian People. Uh, uh, we all know him as the Zoom master, but obviously he's also a, uh, a PhD student here. Uh, uh, um, already in the third year, I think. No, six months. You lose track of time with all these pandemics and lockdowns. Um, and he will talk about a new project. He uh, is going to start uh, Do Politicians Change Your Rhetoric Over Time? And so I'll just give the floor to you. Yes, uh, thank you for uh, coming to my presentation as well. Um, so this is going to be my new project that I'm going to work on over the next next, next couple of months. Um, so what I'm going to present here now is a little bit of a roundup of, of what I found in my previous paper, which is the starting point for this paper. And, and those of you who have, have been in our little internal meeting on Tuesday have seen most of it. But I think I hope it's still some still some changes there. And that's also 
hopefully some interesting things for those people um, who knew it. Um, so I generally look at political rhetoric and I'm interested in the way politicians um, talk and which another interesting what they talk about, but the way they talk, right? Um, so political rhetoric and especially when it comes to emotional rhetoric, there are these claims that it's strategic, um, that is it's a result of party competition, that there's a difference between liberals and conservatives. Um, but what I've done in my previous papers to take these claims very broadly with through multiple thousands of models at, at parliamentary speeches, and we're trying to figure out, we're trying to see if these claims about influence of conservatism, experience, extremism, the gender of politicians, um, their happiness, the economy, um, if these things, if these things actually hold across European countries, across parliaments, across time, and across model specifications. Um, this is the, the resulting plot is all over the place. I'm not going to explain in detail what you see here. What you see is um, you see effect sizes across model specifications. But the important thing to see here is that, except for one variable, which is the government variable, this government column, where all the effects, these lines are red, which are significant, and they're all on one side. So in all countries, it goes in one direction. But in all other, in all other instances, we don't see any systematic relationship between these system level variables. Um, on the rhetoric of politicians. So we don't see any of these systematic relationships here between system level variables like economy, happiness, et cetera. But we also don't see anything for individual level characteristics. So the idea was then for this project then to, to take a step back and just basically ask, do members of parliament actually change the way they speak over time? Um, and the sub-questions there would be, um, which which features of the rhetoric do they change? If there's some change, do we see that for, for different rhetoric features? And I uh, talk about in a second what that means, rhetoric features, but also what explains the change. And when it comes to explanations here, which is like the hypothesis that I'm going to develop and test, um, they relate mainly to the idea of uh, professional socialization. That politicians just enter the parliament as individuals and become politicians and become more like and probably leave and die than as politicians. <laughs> And I think this is important because it, it does relate to, to issues regarding representation and reputation. Um, politicians that appear as an individual in the way they speak, bring, bringing in new ideas, new issues, because they got newly voted in on the basis of bringing in an issue so in most cases, and um, being distinctive in the way they speak about that issue. But if this is true that over time they lose this distinctiveness, I think that that does say something about this, this thing here. Um, so the hypotheses that I have um, are related to the idea of professionalization or organizational um, uh, institutionalizations where just members of an organization become more alike over time. Um, so my first hypothesis here is just a very simple idea that um, new MPs just are distinct in their rhetoric from established MPs. Um, and that this difference, this distinctiveness diminishes over time, that becomes small over time. And what I also would expect is that this diversity in rhetoric um, within parties is more diverse where in systems where there's less control over who's allowed to speak in parliament. And the data I use for that, I'm going to use for that is the Pulse Speech Dataset, which is a data set of uh, clean and processed um, parliamentary, parliamentary speeches, covers roughly 30 years from nine, from nine countries, um, of which uh, one is non European. Yeah. It's, it's eight European countries as well as New Zealand. Um, okay, I guess UK is still European, I think, so it counts as <laughs> um, 
and um, the, the, the data for, for party control of speaker selection comes from function uh, statement of their compilation of, of and classification of how much parties have parties and party leadership has control over who's allowed to speak in parliament. Um, I'm looking at a diverse set of recordable features, um, which are positivity, negativity, emotionality, the, a neutral way of talking, a narrative way of talking, factual way of talking, aggressive way of talking. Uh, these are all measures that are measured with dictionaries. Um, and also the complexity of, of, of the speeches and the degree of repetition. Um, those measures that are measured with dictionaries are based on uh, locally trained word embeddings that are, that are trained on, on, on the corpus of each parliament using, using a fast text algorithm. And they use a couple of seed dictionaries that inf and, and find semantically similar words in these corpora um, to improve the, the, the well, the accuracy of these dictionaries and, and, and it has been shown that this really improves also, this really improves that the accuracy of this dictionary quite uh, dramatically. I'm using a couple of C dictionaries. Um, um, so, for, as, as, an as an example here, this would be a, a speech that scores, then very, that scores very high on, on the rhetoric feature of, of a narrative style, which is a style that just um, talks about uh, giving examples, telling a story. Um, personal in the way to talk about relationships between people that is about like on a belated like to visit my constituency where local authority and hacking has done an excellent job so you see this is like we it's like a story um whereas here this would be a, a speech that's very high on a factual degree of a factual dimension of rhetoric and it's about it's about a lot of comparison data hard facts um this would be a speech with very low complexity so you see i fixed my pre-processing <laughs> so the the misplaced dots and some abbreviations are, have been filled out. But this is now a speech that scores very less, uh, very uh, low in complexity. So this is easy to understand, short sentences. Um, whereas a speech like this, which is basically just one sentence and, and covers so much, um, is very hard to comprehend, both by, by reading and by listening to it. Um, repetition is something I thought about a bit more. Um, what I mean by repetition, which would be that the politicians use the same words and phrases all over again. And I thought of having a rolling score that always combines um, the degree of repetition within the current speech and an X number of previous speeches. And I have no idea of what would be a right, like the right number of speeches that didn't really, wasn't able to think that through yet. Um, but to combine previous speeches of a politician at time X and, and calculate how much you can compress them. And by compress, it means like how much you can reduce the information in those speeches at the higher degree of compression is the more repetition is in there. Um, so my empirical strategy of assessing of testing these, these ideas that I put forward in hypothesis will be to first, um, I calculate all these measures for each legislator, for each speech, then I aggregate that at the quarter level, I think quarter is a, a good middle ground between um, having enough variation within quarter of speech and speeches, but also um, having some more temporal finer grained um, look at it compared to two year analysis. Um, but I've seen that. So I think year analysis might work fine as well. Too. Um, and the data setup would then be that I look at the data always for one parliamentary term, which varies in length between parliaments and, 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 and if there's a snap election or not, of course. Um, but within each term, I divide, I create two categories of speakers. I create newcomers who just entered the parliament at that, at, during that term. And I uh, look at established people. Those are the MPs who entered any time before that term. 
Um, and the idea then would be to cluster for each legislator quarter observation of these different dimensions, to cluster, to use a clustering algorithm to figure out how these n dimensions, and n here is the number of these, all these reflect features, how they cluster in a how they how they cluster together. And the easiest or the most straightforward way is to use a k-means clustering algorithm. Um, there are various ways to figure out how many clusters you need, et cetera. But there are also many other algorithms, and this is one thing I didn't uh, figure out yet, which would be the most appropriate way to do that. Um, but what we would get is you get for each of these terms, for each of these, sorry, for each of these quarter, for each quarter in the, within the term, you get an optimal number of clusters, and you get for each person in that term, which cluster they belong to, you get the cluster membership indicator. And the idea is then, what you, what you also get is you can look at which of these dimensions, which of these referral features are um, influential in coming up with these clusters. And what you want, could then do is, you can first look at the number of clusters. And the idea behind is that the higher the number of optimal clusters, the higher the optimal number of clusters is the more diversity is in there. Overall, including all these referral dimensions. But the other thing is, of course, you can predict cluster membership with separate, with different indicators um, of the legislators, for instance, with the new camera status. So for the first hypothesis, what I would do is, I just look at this new camera status within a term is predictive of cluster membership. This is very straightforward. Is the second the, for the second hypothesis it gets a bit more tricky. So the idea would there be that um, first of all, this predictive this predictiveness of of uh, newcomer status diminishes over time. Um, and I, I priori have I have no real expectation like how fast it goes or if this is a slow or long process. And I give you a little a short uh, a brief data sneak peek that suggests it's, it's a rather fast process. Um, but this. I would expect this predictive power to be diminishing over time within the term. Um, and also this optimal number of clusters would get smaller over time within the term, meaning that it gets less diverse. And for hypothesis three, um, I would repeat the same, same thing, but this time within term and parties, and then see based on party control, how much this is indicative or predictive for the number of within party clusters. Basically taking the same logic, but just looking looking at party and seeing then how that differs in terms of party control over speaks. Um, to wrap up, final sneak peek of data. I just took 100 speakers during two terms. Just want to have a look, get some feeling for um, how things are playing out in the data. I had 50 newcomers, 50 established MPs um, in this period between 2005 and 2015. Very overall, we have separated these scores, uh, these average scores for each quarter um, by newcomer status. And you have uh, here nine different rhetoric um, dimensions, aggression, complexity, emotionality, factual, narrative, negative, neutral, positive, and repetition. Uh, and what you see here is that for some of them, you do see a difference at the beginning of, of the term, which is at the very beginning of the, of those, of the, of the, of the data, so at the beginning of the line. And so for aggression, you see that um, newcomers are less aggressive, but you see for emotionality that they're more emotional, that is diminishing over time. And just zooming in into four of these relationships, having a little bit bigger, you see there's a difference uh, from some features, and this difference diminishes very fast. So, this is a process that happens over like four, five, six quarters, like one and a half years, max two years. So, when I conclude from that, so I've, um, I'm happy that I do see something going on. So, I think that this, this study makes sense. And it might be fruitful. 
Um, this difference images quickly. And the question then, of course, is does this pattern hold if you do this actual analysis then across countries and across different parliamentary terms with, uh, with this rigorous testing? This is just not very descriptive, right? Um, these open questions there is something that I still have to think about, and, and I'm not sure yet how I think about them. But is it like what's the role of seasonal effects of the electoral cycle effects? Um, what, what's the role of career ranks? How I would how I would um, think about how these things might also have a role here. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Christian. Um, first. Yeah, um, very nice project. Um, I think I like your development and how do you develop this project further. I've got one question. What will you do with people who enter during your legislative term? I know from the German government, from the German parliament, it's like 30 or 40 per term. I'm not sure, but um, you've got this binary category, newcomer and non-newcomer. And um, yeah, how do you treat these people who enter during the term and why the binary category? If you look at quarterly data, would it make sense to um, I don't know, create a continuous measurement, how long people are in the parliament. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why yeah, you or you opted for the binary newcomer. Yeah, I think so. This is a good question. But the first, the first answer is, um, yes, I did look at, I looked at like how many people do actually enter within, within the term. Mm -hmm. And the problem is like within a quarter that it's maybe like one or two people at a time. And um, and overall, it's it varies between countries, but it's something between like two and four percent of legislators that don't start at the beginning of the term. Yet. So I'm not sure if that this is a very low number of cases. Then what I can really say about about them, right? Yeah. Um, but a continuous measure, yeah. Um, I'm, the, the problem is I'm not sure how would, how would, how would structure the data set. Um, I mean, of course, I can, I can, I can have a continuous for like of experience or like term like how long they're already in Parliament. Um, but the way I thought about now rhetoric of it, like having multiple dimensions being projected into clusters, um, having multiple, having multiple clusters predicted by continuous variable that probably only plays out during a very sh short period of that variable, very short range of that variable. I don't think that, I don't think that works. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think there's a way to do that. Yeah, I'm not an expert on that, but yeah. probably, you know, that better, but I would, if you use the I mean, the EMP is your observational unit, and your mm -hmm. main interest is seniority. Yeah. Um, I think you can try to measure that. Um, yeah. yeah, but the thing, the thing is that, like, what, what's comparison? And who do I compare it to? With other MPs who have been newcomers before. Okay. So. Um, your main idea, if I get that right, is that new MPs are different and mm -hmm. then they adapt. Mm -hmm. And then you can see whether, for example, an MP who entered during, I don't know, the 18th legislative term, for example, in Germany, and the 19th legislative term, whether they are similar at the beginning mm -hmm. or different at the beginning, and during their career, their 
um, they become more alike. Okay. So, so you mean like for for each for each and here we then have always this one on one comparison with with the I would compare each MP, their rhetoric, with some form of mean rhetoric of MPs that are in there at the same time but started earlier. I think that's for each. Yeah. That's everything. Yeah, that's the way to think about it. So what is different time? Mm. The different time periods would be groups that you would then compare with. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll think about that. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks, Christian. Really uh, cool. Uh, you already took a lot of steps since Tuesday. But um, I <laughs> um, was wondering why do you, don't you think that maybe if you become an MP, you already adjust to some of these like, norms in like, being MP? Um, so would, you, would it not be the case that just once you become an MP, everyone sort of talks the same? Or why do you think it's really um, like in the beginning still different? What do you mean? And the uh, fact that you become an MP, it means that you already talk like similarly. Oh, okay. Right? Um, so you mean like you adapt already before you actually yeah. enter in the, during the candidacy yeah. stage of the um, Yes, I definitely would think that you're already like professionals in a sense, right? Before you enter. But I also think this is like this process is only considered only at the beginning, I would assume. I mean, I think that that would make a lot of sense for for politicians who have probably other political roles before that, like high-level political roles, some enter to the, to the national parliament from lower-level parliaments, stuff like that. So this might be actually something also to look at. It might be interesting to look at. Uh, but, I still, but I still think this process of participation doesn't really, it only gets really started once you're in there. And, and, and I mean, there's a lot of literature on like how parliamentarians learn the norms and how, how, how they set yeah. Like it introduces how much um, the, the the beginning they need time to learn to 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 to, to, to how schools work, etc. And of course, in, if you're in these parties, you get prepped for that. But it, it looks like there's still a lot to learn. There's a lot to adopt. So. You might come up with an estimation of their step how established yeah. they are or institutionalized they are once they started mm -hmm. to some extent, right? right? By looking at their career yeah. Yeah. before they start. First obvious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is for super yeah. well progress. Um, I have a question concerning the clustering approach. And you are now kind of going with the Kenyan's strategy, which I don't understand. Um, I've always found it a bit awkward to have very limited information about what actually constitutes this cluster afterwards to so maybe just kind of try get a, a decision tree mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as an alternative for you just to have a better feeling about how the features actually flow into your clusters mm -hmm. or how how much they contribute to the clustering solution i think that would be nice uh, just way to get the feel about how important are the features for your clustering yeah. process um, or just even some like bottom-up or hierarchical clustering that's sort of the entire question. I mean, I mean, that's also something that I'm interested in looking at. I mean, they don't really have any ex ex really expectations of which contributes to distinctiveness. Uh, but I think uh, I said that that's something I want to look at. But I think also came in, I'm not sad on Kate's question, this is just, just one with here, but um, also Kate's question allows you to, to look at what, what contributes to class information. Sorry. Or, yeah. 
I've always found the, the output not as conservative, okay. like mm. just kind of the typical white box algorithms, mm. like uh, like decision trees, etc. Okay. They just in terms of interpretability, yeah. you have yeah. these very clear kind of patterns that also they are a bit um, in terms of the pre-processing of the features, then you get more insight into how the pre-processing affects the okay. way that the cluster is being done when you use kind of this more open pre-processing like the way you standardize the variables, oh, okay. the way you kind of unpack all this. Yeah. Yeah, Fantastic to see progress since Tuesday. So I have like <laughs> different questions <laughs> um, that actually relates to to the ongoing agenda at the time. That you're interested in measuring change of territory. So I was in ways to control for that. Uh, just keep, to, to, to give a more specific example, if you have like a topic, like a socially relevant topic that is really hot at the moment, people talk about it, it could be that you have like different rhetorics on the basis of the affiliation. So how, how do you, have you thought about this? Yeah, you're right. You have to control for, for like some way of some kind of topic measure or like what's the agenda. So I mean, the, the first thing, of course, is that I wouldn't, ex although to be fair, this might be something worth looking at. I don't know if there's a systematic relationship between term timing and issue. I mean, that concern would be valid if, if there would always be like, let's say, a hot issue at the beginning of each parliamentary term, which might be, which I have no idea. I have no idea. So that's definitely something to explore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's, there's one online. We have time for one online question, right? We have two yeah. short questions. Two short questions. Uh, Tom Hackenberg uh, has a question. Uh, thanks for the talk. Two questions. Did you expect that the differences would fade out over time? Building on this, the exploratory plot for emotions showed that there was a difference between the groups halfway in the time series, which would con uh, which would contradict this. Do you know what's going on here? Um, yes, yeah, so I would expect that these differences fade out over time. I mean, that would be exactly what I would deduct from, from this idea of, of institutionalization or professionalization. And um, regarding the second part, at least, yeah, I've seen the two and I have no idea what's going on there. <laughs> I'm interested in what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and I think you might encounter a problem with I visited a party group meeting once and it was a huge fight to speak and usually more senior politicians are then selected and then I don't know this the process of learning how to speak in parliament maybe happens while newcomers just watch other MPs and they are only allowed to speak then after they learned it yeah yes maybe like year but this is I mean, this is exactly what I, what I tried to incorporate into my third hypothesis. And, and I was not sure about the wording of that hypothesis, but yeah, so my, my third idea is exactly that, that this, this degree of speaker selection influences how much I see what's going on there. Right, I mean, I could also think about it probably in the sense that you said, by saying that the degree of speaker selection just um, tells you something about how large these differences are, right? And how, um, and there's data on that. I mean, uh, 
because exactly like, like countries like Germany are like the, the, the most one of the most extreme cases where party where the party draws up the speakers beforehand, but the UK is the exact opposite where everyone is free to speak and everyone can speak. And there's a lot of countries that are in between where for some types of debates or the beginning of or half of the debate, um, the first speaker is always selected by the party, the first two speakers, and then it's then the discussion forms. Uh, but yeah, this is definitely. I think we need to stop. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Christian. And uh, uh, let me uh, take the prerogative of uh, <laughs> having a suggestion that in the last few minutes. Um, I think you're taking, I, I really like the, the added step of looking at clusters. I think that's, that's really innovative. But I also think you're, you might go too fast here uh, because the, I think the first step would be to identify these clusters, to look at what these clusters a major contribution you're already with theory testing and, and i think that 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 may be uh too quick um you can respond over drinks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, it's almost four. I want to thank uh, Matthijs and, and Christian for uh, their presentations. And uh, I just want to say there is no lockdown that is strong enough to close down this lab. So we're just continuing. Uh, and, uh, 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 so next week, Friday, we have Leonie Hadi uh, from Stony Brook University uh, uh, presenting. Uh, I don't have her title uh, close to me, but it's uh, uh, you can check it on our webpage. And then the week after, we have Frederick Hopp from the Amsterdam School of Communication. Uh, 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 giving a talk about uh, the, re the relationship between uh, uh, brain uh, activity, in particular brain regions, and uh, uh, moral story. Uh, Leonie Hadi will talk about nationalism and party politics. Um, thanks, Christine. And then uh, uh, we have a, a minor break, but uh, uh, of course, uh, we'll continue again in 2022. And uh, the first meeting is already set, uh, that's on January 14. Uh, same channel, same location, maybe. Uh, um, different speaker uh, will be Mark Otto from the Department of Psychology, uh, uh, with whom we are currently discussing all kinds of new work regarding polarization in the brain. And so I think that's going to be super exciting. And uh, we're hoping next week, Bert and I, to reveal to you uh, uh, the whole uh, schedule for next year. Um, so that's it for now. Uh, I just want to say go out, enjoy the sun. Have a beer is from the last one. <laughs> See you next week. Thank you.